This episode is brought to you by Wise, the account that helps you manage your money all around the world. I lived overseas for many years, and one of the biggest bottlenecks to international living is money transfers. You want to withdraw money from an ATM to access funds from your American bank account, and you don't realize you're getting hit with a $10 charge every single time you do that. Yeah, that did happen to me. So if you're dining in dollars or want to do business in bot, what a Wise account does is let you send, spend, and receive money in different currencies. Wise is the easiest way to connect all of your finances internationally. This goes from a night out at a tapas bar in Spain to buying a property in the Yucatan. So if you're a digital nomad in Bali or want to send money back to mom, it's simple. And this is all without hidden fees or exchange rate markups. Wise works in over 160 countries, so your money's always at your fingertips. And over half of the transfers get their destination in less time than it takes to listen to this ad. Join 16 million customers and learn how a Wise account can work for you by downloading the app or visiting wise.com unplugged. That's wise.com unplugged. One more time, wise.com unplugged. What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission. At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders, from ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities. CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to the History Unplugged podcast, the unscripted show that celebrates unsung heroes, myth busts historical lies, and rediscovers the forgotten stories that changed our world. I'm your host, Scott Rank. Hi, everyone. Welcome to an in between episode where I answer any question you have about history. Today's question comes from Don Sweet. Don asks this. What were the longer-term impacts on both combatants after the 1565 Siege of Malta? Ooh, the Siege of Malta, the battle between the Ottoman Empire and the Knights Hospitaller. I really like this question because it delves into a part of history that not a lot of people in the West know about, but I think that's really fun, and that is Ottoman naval history. If you like naval history, you might be a fan of Events like the Battle of Trafalgar, where Lord Horatio Nelson defeats the fleets of Napoleon and permanently establishes the power of the British Navy. Or maybe you're a fan of the Pacific Theater in World War II and the use of aircraft carriers and island hopping in naval engagements between the American and Japanese fleets. But I think a really fun but understudied aspect of naval history is the Eastern Mediterranean in the 1500s. This is when the Ottoman Empire grows significantly in power and goes up against the Habsburg Empire, uh, the Spanish, different Italian states like the Venetians. But mixed in with all of this is a lot of piracy. And the line between a Navy man, a pirate, a privateer, and a corsair is very blurry. So in all this chaos, you have a fascinating history. And one of the most important stories is the Siege of Malta and the effect it had on the Mediterranean afterwards. Before I describe these actors, I should mention that as a source, I'm using a lot of the writings of Molly Green. Molly is a historian of the Ottoman Empire who's written a lot on the Mediterranean world in the 1500s, and I recommend checking out her writings if you're more on the academic side of things if you want to learn more about this. Okay, let's talk about our cast of characters. The first are the Knights Hospitaller, or the Knights of St. John. This order was a Christian military order that started in the First Crusade at the end of the 12th century. They were formed 
for the purpose of the defense of Christian pilgrims traveling to the Holy Land, starting with the idea that if you're a pilgrim going to a war zone, you probably need some type of protection so that bandits or enemy soldiers or others don't harass you. The problem is the order sort of lost its initial reason to exist with the Muslim reconquest of Jerusalem in 1187, and the Knights also had to find a new home. After several different residences, they ended up on the island of Rhodes in the southeastern Aegean in 1309, but it was only a matter of time before they would run into the Ottomans, with the Ottoman rise to power in the 14th century, their capture of Constantinople, and their defeat of the Byzantine Empire in 1453, and their slow extension of control over islands of the Aegean, especially in the 1500s. This is when Sultan Suleiman is really pushing through the eastern Mediterranean, conquering islands bit by bit by Italian states and Greek holdings in order to establish more control over the Mediterranean. In the beginning of the 16th century, there were several important Western Christian enclaves that held out against Ottoman imperial expansion. And ensconed in their fortified city of Rhodes, from which they sailed forth to do battle with the Ottoman fleet, the Knights of St. John were among the most formidable of these holdouts. They could field far fewer soldiers and still manage to maintain their defense. The Ottomans tried to take Rhodes in 1480 and failed, and Suleiman was determined to rid his empire of this Christian presence in what he considered to be otherwise Ottoman territory. The Ottomans succeeded in 1522, and surprisingly, Sultan Suleiman allowed the survivors to depart the island in exchange for the promise that they would refrain from engaging in hostilities against the empire. Ha <laughs> ha, yeah, that definitely didn't happen. Well, these soldiers settled on the small stony island of Malta by the order of Pope Clement II and Charles V of Spain, and they conducted numerous small-scale raids against the Ottoman shipping lines, which the Spanish and the Pope wanted. I mean, that's why they allowed them to have that line for basically a nominal amount. All right, so you have the Knights of St. John on Malta, and they're acting like pirates or corsairs, not like proper navy men or soldiers, definitely not like a holy order. I should mention a little bit more about piracy and corsairs because this is really the spirit of the Mediterranean in the 1500s and what makes it one of the most fascinating eras in naval history. Now, piracy has been practiced throughout history, violence at sea, and the Mediterranean has always had its share, going well before Roman times into the Bronze Age. The stony soil and aridity of the region has always encouraged poor farmers to try their luck at sea, and the many islands scattered across the eastern Mediterranean has provided safe harbor and concealment. In most parts of the world, when a pirate fought on behalf of the state, he was known as a privateer. States that didn't have big navies were happy to use the services of a privateer, especially the Ottoman Empire. They first encountered the sea in the 1350s. They didn't have naval knowledge, and until they acquired it for themselves, privateer services were important. There was also a figure in the Mediterranean known as a corsair. A corsair is something between a pirate and a privateer, but it has a religious meaning to it. The term comes around in the 12th century, and that's not an accident, because that's when antagonism between Christianity and Islam really kick up due to the First Crusade. The term corsair has a religious connotation. To be a Christian corsair was to be a warrior engaged in the eternal battle against Islam, and for a Muslim corsair, it's the opposite. For a corsair, the battle between Christianity and Islam is perennial. So a corsair was not limited to the periods of declared warfare, for example, between the Ottoman Empire and Habsburg, Spain, but it could go on forever, sort of like an unlimited holy war. A navy man would only fight during a war, but a corsair could fight anytime he wanted to, 
And you could claim more legitimacy in a sense to it than just being a pirate where you're stealing for wealth. In the 16th century, when conventional navies on both the Ottoman and Spanish sides engaged in a number of large-scale battles at sea, Corsairs were submerged in the organized fighting forces of internationally recognized states. There were a lot of Corsairs who fought in Ottoman navies and Habsburg navies. But toward the end of the 16th century, when the Ottomans and the Spanish conducted a truce and turned their attention elsewhere, Spain to the New World and Ottomans actually to Indonesia, many of these Corsairs who didn't have the material opportunities of warfare just fought one another in the name of their religion. And they lived off the profits of raiding at sea. So the 17th century becomes known as the Age of the Corsair in the Mediterranean. And this returns us to Malta and the Knights of St. John. They were the most notorious Christian Corsairs. On the Muslim side, you have the three North African Corsair states of Algiers, Tripoli, and Tunis. These Corsairs took many Christian Europeans as slaves and sold them into slave markets. And it was Thomas Jefferson who initiated a military action in order to attack Tripoli in order to prevent these Corsairs from taking slaves. And the ability for these Corsairs to terrorize peaceful commercial shipping in the name of Islam or Christianity was due to the inability of these larger states to impose order at sea. Over time, as the navies of the Northern European powers grew in strength, they were able to rein in the activity of these Corsairs. So that sets the stage. I really wanted to give a lot of context uh, in order to paint a picture of why the Siege of Malta is important. Now let's get into the Siege of Malta and get right to Don's questions about what were the after effects for Muslims and Christians. At this time in European history, the Ottoman Empire was in absolute terror. It conquered Constantinople in 1453. With the Battle of Mohach, it was able to enter into southern Hungary in 1526, and the Ottomans became the dominant power in Central Europe, along with Eastern Europe. They controlled the Balkans. They were establishing themselves as a serious naval power and essentially controlled the Eastern Mediterranean. And there was full expectation that they were going to continue conquering into Europe. Martin Luther even wrote tracts about the military threat of the Turks. The Siege of Malta took place in 1565. An Ottoman fleet of 240 ships under the command of Piale Pasha surrounded Malta. The fortress of St. Elmo was captured, but the siege failed because the fortified towns of Birgu and St. Angelo could not be seized. Now, this was an enormous psychological blow to the Ottoman Empire because they were unsuccessful in capturing this fort and it was one of the first major defeats that the empire had suffered in several decades. The number of casualties is in dispute. One account gives 35,000 Turkish deaths. Several others give about 25,000. Malta lost a third of the knights and a third of its inhabitants. Now, many European states were thankful to the knights for their heroic defense of the island, and money began to pour in, allowing the knights to construct a fortified city so that the Turks couldn't occupy the position. Now, the Siege of Malta did little to alter the balance of power in the Mediterranean, but it was the first true defeat of the Ottoman Empire in a century and lifted European morale significantly. A much bigger defeat happened in 1571 with the famous Battle of Lepanto. The papacy, Venice, and Spain launched an armada to directly confront the Ottoman fleet. At the confrontation between the two armadas in the Gulf of Lepanto on October 7, 1571, Many Ottoman sailors were killed, including the Grand Admiral, and the Ottoman Armada was soundly defeated. Now, the Ottoman Empire, it's not as if they weren't able to recover. Within a year or two, they rebuilt their fleet. But from the end of the 16th century, the Ottoman fleet served in a protective capacity, not sailing across the Mediterranean for large-scale attacks. 
So what you have here as a result for both sides is lots of piracy happening. As I said earlier, that's probably one of the main effects, Don, that happens as a result. Okay, so what happened to the Knights of St. John, this order that began in the First Crusade and had mutated into basically this brotherhood of pirates fighting, as they claim in the name of Christianity, but really for a lot of money? Well, the European fervor for crusade waned in the 16th and 17th century, as there simply wasn't a material interest to retake the Holy Land a lot of Europeans, and many Europeans didn't want to fight religious wars, they just wanted to fight defensive secular wars. Even Martin Luther didn't want to fight against the Turks for the purpose of a crusade. He thought, well, if we fight for secular purposes for defending our state, we'll do that, but not for any jihad or holy war or whatever you want to call it. By the 17th century, the Knights of St. John were widely criticized for abandoning their supposed Christian purity of earlier centuries, mostly because the Maltese capital of Valletta became kind of like a Las Vegas of the Mediterranean. Young men appointed to the order spent as much time in brothels and taverns as they did on ships. They claimed to be fighting for Christianity, but were acting as pirates. Financial donations continued to come in from across Catholic Europe, and and the Knights of Malta still enjoyed substantial prestige for fighting against the religious enemies of Europeans there. So joining the order continued to be a viable option for many younger sons of the aristocracy who couldn't hope to inherit their father's estates. And the order survived until 1798 when Napoleon Bonaparte occupied the island and formally abolished the order. So there you are, Don. That was the result of the Siege of Malta. It dealt a psychological blow to the Ottomans, somewhat useful for the Europeans, but really ushered in a golden age of piracy with a slathering of religious rhetoric all over it for the next century or two to come. Well, thank you for asking the question. If anyone would like to submit one to me, you can go to historyunpluggedpodcast.com and I'll be glad to answer anything you throw my way. Thanks for listening to the History Unplugged podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show to get your daily dose of all things history related from ancient Greece to the Cold War. You can do that by going to historyonthenet.com forward slash subscribe. Speaking of history on the net, If you want to dive deeper, go to our site, historyonthenet.com, and there you'll find blog posts, book reviews, and all of our other podcast episodes. Plus, don't forget to rate and review this podcast so we can bring you the best daily history content possible. We'll see you next time at the History Unplugged podcast. When you drive a vehicle so reliable it's backed by a 10-year, 100,000-mile limited warranty, you stop thinking about what you can't do and start doing what you never thought possible. Visit your local Kia dealer today to see what you're capable of in a vehicle that inspires confidence around every corner. Kia. Movement that inspires. Call 800-333-4KIA for details. Always drive safely. Limited inventory available. Warranties include 10-year, 100,000-mile powertrain and 5-year, 60,000-mile basic. Warranties are limited. See retailer for details. Lucky Land Casino, asking people, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car, before my kid's PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.